want to grab your Bible and find your place in Luke chapter 6 this morning. We're going to just move on in the, the story. We've been working verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke for a number of months now, and we come to chapter 6, verse 17, 18, and 19. And so as we look at that passage in just a minute, we're going to see an aspect of competitiveness. You know, as you think about we as human beings, there is a pretty strong competitive aspect to who we are. Humans are competitive. Uh, we like to compete. We like to outdo the other. We want to have the best product. We want to finish the race first. We are competitive. And as such, really the natural inclination of a man or, or woman, for that matter, is to create, it's to obtain an advantage. We want to get a heads up or an advantage over our opponent. And once that advantage or privilege is established, it's leveraged, it's exploited, many times at the expense of others. One of the clearest depictions of this sort of advantage-seeking or this desire to, to, to get a, 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 an advantage over someone else is seen in war. Uh, if you are maybe a student of uh, history and you've looked and read how armies have squared off against one another, one of the initial tactics in war is to take the high ground. It's to get that advantage from a higher vantage point so that you can monitor and then strategically strike the enemy. And so that is something that is clear, that competitive side there, that advantage side there is clear in this picture of war. A couple of weeks ago, uh, several of our boys in the student ministry, along with Pastor Nate and myself, uh, spent an evening. I didn't stay the whole evening because, you know, I got a life, but uh, I'm kidding, kidding. But well, we spent a, a good portion of time up here on the church campus playing airsoft. And if you don't know what airsoft is, here's what it is. It is an excuse for older boys and men my age to still play with G.I. Joes and not be made fun of, right? <laughs> to not feel bad about it. That, that's what airsoft is. Airsoft is, it's a gun, and uh, it's, it's a gun that shoots a little BB. It's made out of plastic. Sometimes it's, you can get them in biodegradable type forms, but it shoots at a, 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 in a way or in a strength that stings when it hits, but it's not too bad, especially if you wear some long clothes or a coat. And, and so it's never going to penetrate the skin. And so it's kind of like paintball, but better, right? And so we were up here, and, and I'm kind of getting new into it, but uh, we were up here playing, and we squared off in the woods back here on the backside of our campus. And so that first battle, if you call it that, um, that, that game that we started there back in the woods, we start with two teams. We're on opposite ends of the woods. And so uh, when somebody said go or whatever the, the, the charge was or the, the signal was, we moved out into the woods. And I quickly noticed that our property kind of slants. And so one side of the, the, the woods is higher than the other sides. And there was a, a, there was a real thick part in there on the high side on their side. And so I figured, hey, they've got to come around the thicket. I'm going to get staged up here on the high side of the ground because they're going to come around that way. And sure enough, they did. And so I was able up there from a vantage point to see them before they saw us or definitely saw me. And so that's what we do in, in war. That's what armies do against each other. They're looking for the advantage. The competitive spirit of people is displayed in the way in which we look for advantage over others. Uh, the spirit is, 
is also demonstrated in the way people want to be recognized, right? We, there's something about us, perhaps even in our fallen nature, I guess, that's what best explains is we, we enjoy the recognition. And so it's natural for a person to want to be honored and known. We understand that, though it may not always be good, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Think, for instance, it is good for us in our society to honor those in particular positions or who have accomplished certain things. So if we were today to be introduced or be able to be in the presence of our president, we would not say Joe, we would say Mr. President, right? If we met a senator today, a man or a woman, we would say Mr. Senator or Madam Senator. If we were in the presence of our governor, we would say Governor Yunkin. We're using titles because that is the position the person holds. Here locally, we would say Mr. Byerly. We would say Dr. Tigan as our superintendent. Even when it comes to the church, we would say Pastor so-and-so. We're using that title, that recognition, because that person holds a certain level of achievement or Position. Those are good things in our society. Unfortunately, titles and the prominence that the title brings uh, are, are too, maybe too extreme or too important to certain people. And, and so people enjoy the privileges and the recognition that oftentimes accompany the title. And so their perceived elevation is something they're seeking after. So that's a, a bad thing. The competitive spirit that we're talking about here is not lost on the Lord's disciples. You read about it oftentimes in the Gospels where they began to lose sight of what was really important and began to focus on things that were not important. And so the disciples here are just like you and I. They're men who are fallen. They're men who have a sinful nature. They're men who are walking with Jesus, but they're trying to, to figure out how to do that more successfully, more, more, uh, more faithfully. But they're not perfect. They're just like you and I. And so they struggled with this competitive spirit just as, like, just as much as you and I do today. So as we're moving forward in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord Jesus offers for us this morning in this passage an object lesson. He's going to move in from that or on from that. And he's going to offer instruction in, in the next several verses on what it means to follow him. Today we're going to look at the object lesson. And in the coming weeks we're going to look at the, the, the teaching, the instruction of what it looks like to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Specifically, these 12 men that we looked at last week who are now named apostles. And so from this passage, I want, to just, I want us to discover that the disciple who walks with Jesus has his face, his eyes turned toward Jesus, but his hands and his feet are with the people. I want you to see this morning that as a follower of Jesus, the disciple, is that we have our, our minds in heaven, we have our focus on the Lord, but we are placed right here on this earth to live amongst the people and to be Jesus's hands and his feet. So look with me in, in uh, Luke chapter 6, and let's begin reading in verse 17. Luke says this, and he, and then we know that's Jesus, came down with them, that is the apostles that we saw in the previous passage. It says, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Now let me just remind us of what's happening in Luke chapter 6. What we have seen as we've walked the last few Sundays through this chapter is that 
First of all, it began with Luke describing and, and giving us the picture of Jesus being greater and even the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so what we see there is the repose that these, this one day a week repetition was pointing to found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. He is the one who brings rest to our souls. And so he is our repose, just as it has been foreshadowing since the garden. We also learn that the love of Jesus, or Jesus' love for humanity, is what compels him to seek out and to heal broken people. We, we saw that Jesus is our life giver. He's the, the one who gives us new life and full life. And so out of that desire to heal the broken, what we saw last Sunday is Jesus then appoints 12 men to be apostles. And Luke names those 12 men for us in that passage. He appointed these men to preach the message of the kingdom, to demonstrate its presence through these signs and wonders. And so what the apostles are appointed to do, what they're going to carry out, is they're going to continue the work of Jesus long after he's gone. I told you last Sunday, Jesus knows that he's going away. Jesus knows he will be crucified, buried, and then ascend back to the Father. And yet the church will continue. So the apostles are the ones who establish the church and establish its doctrine. Following this appointment of the apostles, what we read here in this passage this morning is that Jesus came down from the mountain. Jesus comes down with the twelve and he comes to a level place. He comes to maybe a plateau. The, the word there, the phrase that's used in the text can speak of a plain or it can speak of a plateau, which is a plain on top of a mountain. Now, Jesus, up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, has largely been ministering in the Sea of Galilee or the region of Galilee around that sea, around that giant lake. And a few of us were in Israel just a few months ago. And, and so as I read that this morning, I'm picturing what the landscape looks around in the area of Galilee. There are several mountains, and for us who maybe been to the Rockies, or at least we've been to the, uh, the Appalachians not far from us, we would go to Israel and say, these aren't really mountains, they're more of hills. And that's probably true. I would say that uh, because I've stood on the peak of uh, many tall mountains in the Rockies, and so what you see there is not what you see in Israel, but these hills, as we would say in America, they have jagged, steep embankments, and so many of them also have plateaus connected. And so as I think about what the landscape looks like and where Jesus might have been, though we don't know, I think of Mount Arbel. It sits on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful mountain. It's real high and jagged on one side. It's a, a rock face, a cliff, and then you can drive up the backside of it, and it's a big plateau up on top. High above the Sea of Galilee. You can see everything. And so we don't know where Jesus was. I don't think he was on Mount Arbel, but he could have been close by. But he comes down to a level place with his disciples, with his apostles, and he begins to teach the people. He begins to minister to their needs as well. And so on this level plane, the Lord here presents the apostles with an object lesson. Before he's going to launch them out in chapter 9, he's going to begin to really invest in them and prepare them for what is coming. He will teach them this morning what we're going to see, some prerequisite lessons for discipleship. 
They're going to discover the importance of standing on level ground by learning that the disciple who walks with Jesus has his or her feet firmly planted on the earth. And their eyes are on Jesus while their hands or feet are ready to minister and to be with the people. So let me share with you three prerequisite lessons this morning. The first thing I want you to notice is that spiritual leadership is servant leadership. Now, I prepared this. I did the outline long before I looked at this small group lesson for today. And so as I was going through that later, the latter part of last week, I began to realize, hey, these are pretty, as far as the, the theme, are very close to what we just saw if you were in small group a few minutes ago, looking at the life and the mistakes of King Rehoboam in the nation of Judah. And so what we see here, what we see in Rehoboam's life, is that when you are a leader, you should first and foremost be a servant. It's doubly so when you're a spiritual leader. Jesus is teaching the apostles here that spiritual leadership is servant leadership. So look at verse 17. We read here from Luke that Jesus came down from the mountain with his disciples, and they stood together on a level place. As the crowd of Christ followers and the crowd of miracle seekers gathered around Jesus and the twelve, they are standing on a level place. And the Lord uses this teaching time to deliver this message referred to as what we call today the Sermon on the Plain. We'll get to that in a few weeks. The contents of this message are similar to what we would read in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. There we call it the Sermon on the Mount. We're pretty confident where he delivered that sermon just on the uh, on the north side shore of the sea of Galilee right there in that area west of Capernaum Jesus stood on the banks and he taught the people that is different from this sermon this message and i think it's uh, evident for a couple of reasons first of all it says he's on a level plane we look at back Mac, Matthew chapter 5 we see it's on a mountainside also you see at the the what's in the, in the sermons, the content of the sermons, and it's different. In Matthew, he seems to be talking to the general people about general things. In Luke, he seems to be talking directly to his apostles and instructing them on what it means to be a disciple and the persecution that's going to come with that and the hope you have even in the face of persecution. So here we have what we would call the Sermon on the Plain. And he uses this as an object lesson to teach these men before uh, they begin to launch out into this new ministry. So they're standing on a level place. Luke is pointing this out to us. In other words, he's saying there's no elevation here whatsoever between Jesus and the people, the apostles and the people, which means Jesus and his men are not standing above the people, and they're not standing below the people. You say, what's the big deal with all this? Well, oftentimes we see in the gospel when Jesus is teaching the people, he is either elevated, but more than likely under the people he's teaching. He uses the contour of the land as a natural acoustic to allow his voice to travel up the mountainside. When we stood there on the Sea of Galilee, where it's believed that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, it's there, and you could go down a little bit further, and you stood up and turned around from the back, turned your back to the Sea of Galilee and spoke up the hill, your voice carried the natural acoustic of the terrain of the land. Here Jesus is standing on level ground with the people. He and his men are standing on level ground with the people. Now, why is that so significant? I think Luke is pointing out that spiritual leadership is first and foremost servant leadership. Now, who is Jesus? We read the Bible and we see that Jesus is the greatest of all 
leaders. There's never been, there never will be a leader as great as Jesus. Think about who he is. He's the king of heaven. The Bible tells us he's the son of God. The Bible tells us that he is the one through whom everything was created. John 1 tells us that he is the Logos, the word of God, by which everything that was made that has been made. That's who Jesus is. He is great. He's king. He's God. He's creator. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's coming one day because Jesus is great. Jesus is worthy of all honor. And yet the Bible tells us that he entered this world in the humblest of ways. Rather than descending in his glory, Jesus descended in his humility by being born to a servant girl in a stable. On top of that, it's a situation that is shameful in their culture as she is not married and she is a virgin yet giving birth to a son. How do you explain that in their day and age. How would you explain that in our day and age? Jesus came in a humble way. He came as a servant. J. Oswald Sanders in his classic book called Spiritual Leadership reminds us that Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 verses 43 and 44, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Sanders there points out that Jesus's concept of leadership was revolutionary. See, servants are those of low Prestige. They are those of low respect. They are those who have low honor, no honor even. And yet Jesus turned the idea and the concept of being a servant into a synonym of greatness. We learn from the Lord that the kingdom of God, that is the church, is a community where each member serves the other. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 5, that we are to serve one another. And this service begins and is modeled first by his spiritual leaders. So the believer who aspires to lead in the church must be willing to serve others. Those who are in spiritual leadership in the church, if you're not first willing to be a servant, you're unqualified to be a leader within God's people. Leaders work to benefit and bless others rather than themselves. They stand on level ground with the people they serve. Jesus and those 12 men, as he modeled that for them, he is standing toe-to-toe with the people. He's not above them. He's not below them. He is with them. That leads us to a second prerequisite lesson. I want you to notice that both the saved and the seeker are welcome. Luke describes here in verses 17 and 18 the people who gathered on the place to hear from Jesus. He says that they were, many of them were his disciples. They were those who had believed on Jesus. They were those who were following Jesus. We might refer to them as the saved and the regenerate We might refer to them as those who've been born again and experienced new life in the Lord because they had placed their faith and were following him as the Messiah. The others gathered there on that plane, on that level place, are what we might describe as seekers. They were those who came from Judea and Jerusalem, from the city of Tyre and the city of Sidon, two port cities on the edge of the Mediterranean, just up in the Libya area, or the, uh, not Libya, that's in Africa. Lebanon area. Get my geography right here. And so these folks come, Jew and Gentile, to set before the Lord, to hear his teaching, and to be healed by him. Now, although their purpose of gathering there on the plain was to offer instruction to the apostles, I believe that's the core of what Jesus is seeking to do here. What, is it, what else is he doing? He's ministering to the people. 
He's not just talking to the 12. He's not just talking to the church, if you will. He's talking to saved and seeker. He's talking to both camps. He's ministering and healing and, and, and liberating those who have demonic oppression and demonic possession. He is ministering to all the people who are present seeking him. Today... We follow the Lord's pattern presented right here. We follow the pattern presented and modeled by the apostles in the early church. You see, when we gather each Lord's Day every single Sunday, what are we doing? I'm preaching primarily, and in small group, we're teaching primarily to the church. We're teaching believers. We're instructing the church of God, the people of God. That's where our focus is. But we, just, we don't just say, hey, you got to swipe your membership card at the door, and if you're not a member, if you're not a believer, you can't come in. No, we believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It's for those of us are, who are believers and those of us who want to believe on Jesus, Right? And so sitting here this morning, more than likely, we have both Christians and non-Christians. We have people who are members and non-members. It happens every single Sunday, people watching us online. So we follow that model, welcoming the saved, welcoming the seeker, the ones God's Spirit is moving and drawing to himself. That's the lesson the apostles needed to learn. Here, here's what I think is going on. If you notice the mindset of the Pharisees who are constantly combating with Jesus. We've never done it that way. Why are you doing this? Why are your disciples eating grain? It's the Sabbath. You can't do that. Jesus, why are you healing people on the Sabbath? They're constantly combating with Jesus, so they have this mindset, this mentality of, it's us for and no more, right? We're the ones in the kingdom. Let's keep everyone else out. And I think Jesus is doing something here to model a different heart, a different spirit, to saying all are welcome at the foot of the cross. You see, that land is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is. It doesn't matter what your educational background is. It doesn't matter how much money you got in the bank or how much money you don't have in the bank. It doesn't matter anything as far as a title or an accomplishment. When you come to Christ and you set before Calvary and what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross, the ground is level. It's level. And the apostles needed to know that before they began to lead. There's a, three pre, a third prerequisite lesson on discipleship. We see here the Savior's activity in one person often leads to his work in others. Verse 18 says, And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. The Lord's reception of both the saved and the seeker here brought transformation to the lives of of others. Many people that day were changed by Jesus Christ, and so his ministry was quite a stir there in that area. Verse 19 reveals that more and more people recognize Jesus' power. More and more people availed themselves to Jesus' power. They saw him doing something in one person's life, and they said, man, if I could just touch him. You remember the story about the woman who had the, the, the bleeding of her body for 12 years, and no one could cure that? The Bible tells us that she drained her bank accounts, had no more money, seeking help from doctors, but she knew that if she touched the hem of Jesus' robe, she could be healed. That's the mindset here. They see what Jesus is doing in one person's life, and the guy that has a similar need in his own life says, if I could just get close to Jesus, if I could just touch Jesus, if I could encounter Jesus, my life would be different. 
my life would be changed. My life would be transformed. That's what's happening. This portrait of Jesus and his powerful healing is a strong theme all throughout the Gospel of Luke. We see it here emphasized. And so we get the idea that the Lord's transformational work in one person's life is leading to similar works in other people's lives. And isn't that the same thing that happens today? You see, when Jesus gets a hold of your life, and people know who you are, people know what your background is, and people know where you came from, people know what you've struggled with, people know the hurdles that you've been able to accomplish, or, or I should say get over, but they understand it wasn't you, it was Jesus. They're intrigued by that. They're drawn to that. We've had a couple moths come in the front door in the last few days. And, uh, you know, you open the door, take the dog out at night, it's dark outside, it's light inside, so they, you know, they immediately run in. And so you think, man, how am I going to catch this moth? He can fly, I can't fly, he could go to the top of the ceiling if you want. But what do you know? Turn a light on and the moth goes to the light. You catch the moth, you throw it outside or bury it. <clears throat> you know, give it a nice funeral and say some nice words over it. People are drawn to the light. People are drawn to the light in your life. I don't know how much you know of all the stories in the gospel. Sometimes I, I, I just assume that people are very familiar with the individual stories, but one of those that I, I don't know if I, how often I mention it, but it's one of those that intrigues me, so I feel like I go to it a lot. But in Mark chapter 5, it's the story of the demoniac, right? Mark chapter 5, Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee. He gets on the other side, which is the area on the east side. It's the Gentile region. And as Jesus gets on the other side of his disciples, he's immediately met by this man who is possessed with demons. In fact, he begins to engage him in conversation, and we learn that he's possessed by legions of demons. Not just one, legions. Jesus, because he's God, casts those demons out. They go into the pigs, they run down the hillside, and they crash in the Sea of Galilee. That's not the story. The story is the demoniac who is now transformed. The Bible tells us he's sitting there in his right mind. He is no longer thinking, acting, doing looking the way he did just a few minutes prior to that. He's in his right mind, and Jesus begins to leave with his disciples, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Go back to your home. Go back to your city and tell the good things that God has done for you. And the Bible tells us that's exactly what he did. Can you imagine being family members of the demoniac? I mean, you, you've done everything you can to, like, marginalize yourself from his life. Hey, I heard that your brother's running outside in the tombs and cutting himself again. We, they tried to uh, uh, arrest him and chain him up. There. He broke those things loose. That's your brother, right? I, I don't know who you're talking about. That's the way people would have responded to him. And yet now this man, really wish we knew his name. We just call him the demoniac, but he's no longer a, de a demoniac. He, he's now a saved redeemed man. He comes into the city where he's from, and he's not who he once was. And people begin to take notice. Of it. What is wrong with you? For number one, you have clothes on today. You look different. Your, your voice is different. Your, your language is different. Your actions are different. Everything about you is different. What happened to you, man? I met Jesus. 
I was just, I don't even know what I was doing. I was so under the control of the demonic that, that it had completely taken control of my life. But I ran down to Jesus in my demonic mindset to, to hurt him, to harbor ill will toward him. And all of a sudden, Jesus changed my life. And I can't explain it, but Jesus changed my life. Can you imagine the people in that town thinking, that dude was demon-possessed not by one, but by legions. I'm struggling with this one thing. If Jesus changed his life, surely he can change that for me. See, when Jesus works in one person's life, others take notice of that, and it often leads to him working in their lives as well. The Savior's activity leads to other activities in other people's lives. Today, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, here's what I want you to know. You have a story, too. Your story may not be so awe-inspiring and, and, and just like motion picture type story like the demoniac. I would love for a, a, a real, true Hollywood type production to be done on the story of the demoniac. Wow, I mean, if you could see that on the big screen, vivid before you, what a story that would be. You say, my story's not like that. Here's what I know about you. You have a story as well. You were, if you know Jesus Christ, you were once dead in trespasses and sins, but God, in his mercy, came to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And by his blood, you've been redeemed. That's a story to tell. You say, I grew up in the church. I've really never done anything wrong. Well, according to the Bible, you were just as much of a sinner as the demoniac who had legions of demons. And the blood of Jesus shed on the cross redeems him, and it redeems you in the same way. It didn't take more blood. It didn't take less blood. It took the blood. So you have a story to tell. And when you begin to tell the story of Jesus' work and activity in your life, it leads, he uses it to work in the lives of others. We call it a testimony. We call it sharing our faith. We call it sharing the gospel with someone else. It's something we ought to do every single day. Because we have a story to tell. Jesus has given us new life. He's removed our sin. He's transformed us. We have a story of redemption to share with others, which often leads to Jesus doing a very similar work in the lives of the people right around us. Where does all this happen? On level ground. It's on level ground. I struggled this past week because um, I'm making a big deal out of level ground. And all the commentators that I read are not making a big deal out of level ground. I'm thinking, did I miss something here? In fact, some of the commentary, commentaries that I read, read, I can't even get my verbs right, didn't even deal with it. They're like, skip over verses 17, 18, and 19 and move right into verses 20 through 26. I'm like, let's back up here, Jack. First of all, it's, it's, it's in the Bible. Let's deal with it. But they didn't even deal with it. I think there's really something significant with the level ground. I think there's an object lesson here that we need to learn, that we need to have our minds, our eyes so fixed on Jesus as if we're walking in heaven, but at the same time, our feet are on the ground right where the people are all around us. That we would not be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. I think we should be in both places as we walk with Jesus. Our eyes fixed on Jesus, our hands and feet ready to help and to run to those who need him. So the apostles are learning on this day that the disciple who walks with Jesus has his feet firmly placed on the earth. We all, by nature, are competitive. We're, we're looking, we're striving to get an advantage. We're going to work to take possession of the high ground. And competitions, I mean, I kind of, I hopefully haven't painted a bad picture of it. It's a good thing. 
I believe competition drives exceptionalism in the world. I believe it leads to a better product being produced. But as Christ followers, we dare not allow our competitive spirits to become arrogant and self-serving. Jesus is want, wanting to make sure that these apostles understand it's about others, not about themselves. So we dare not put ourselves over and above other people. But instead, we should remember the example here, the model here, and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Christians are not better than non-Christians. Both are made in the image of God. Both have a fallen nature. Both are in rebellion against the Lord. The only difference, you see, we all struggle with the same sin. The only difference is Jesus has redeemed some, and he's not yet redeemed others. They need to hear the gospel. The Christian has experienced transformation, and the person who does not know, does not know Christ needs that transformative work in his or her own life. So that ground at the foot of the cross is level. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that you don't have to have a certain last name to kind of get into the kingdom? Or, or come from a certain place in the world? Israel's the chosen people of God, right? That's what we see in the Bible. Abraham was called out from God. A nation was formed from him. Blessings and promises were given to Abraham. Abram, who later became Abraham and his descendants, and yet we stand here a recipient of those blessings, though we're not Israeli. We go and visit Israel, but we're not citizens of Israel. So the promises are bigger than that. The, the ramifications are bigger than that. The, land, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. You don't have to have a certain nationality, certain kinds of, uh, uh, of DNA running through your blood system. No, it's about Jesus. It's all about him. Uh, the old song that kids used to sing in, in Sunday school years ago, red, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in his sight. That's the level ground we're talking about here. We see it all throughout the Gospels. Here, what, remind me, let's just go on a little quick trip here through the Gospels. What do we see Jesus doing? John chapter 4. Jesus comes to Samaria, the hated half-breeds. He sets down sits down outside the city of Sychar next to a well and a Samaritan woman who has a checkered past comes to draw water in the heat of the day while the disciples are gone. She doesn't want to be around anybody, but Jesus wants to be around her. He talks to her, he engages her, and he changes her life. So much so, she goes into the town to the people that don't like her, don't care about her because of her checkered past and says, come see a man that knows everything about my life. And he's changed it. And he can change yours. We read of Jesus sitting down with the hated tax collectors in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 19, Levi and Zacchaeus. No Jew wanted to be around a tax collector, especially a Jewish tax collector, and yet Jesus dines with them. That's Jesus. The woman in John 8 who's caught in adultery, the very act of adultery, the, the Pharisees drag, drag her out before Jesus to, to test him, really. But how does Jesus respond? He who is without sin cast the first stone. They all begin to leave. Your attackers no longer condemn you? No, sir. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. That is Jesus. That's the level ground at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter where you come from. You're accepted. Jesus wants to change your life. And if you've experienced that, he wants to use you. He wants to work through you so that others can experience the same thing in their lives as well. 
So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is where he met you, at the foot of the cross, where it's level. Today, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, this is where he desires to meet you, at the foot of the cross. I said we follow the example of Jesus and the apostles, example of the early church earlier, by welcoming both saved and the seeker. And in that, here's what we do every single Sunday. We give you an opportunity to respond. I believe firmly that any time the word of God, whether it's on your own personal time, reading it devotionally, whether it's in small group, whether it's in a Bible study with others, where you're sitting in a preaching setting like this, whatever the situation may be, when you're sitting under the teaching of the word of God, there ought to be an opportunity and there ought to be a desire to respond to it. And this is what we're coming to. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And this morning, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, you ought to praise God for that. That you didn't do anything, in fact, you couldn't do anything to earn your way into that kingdom. But you were welcomed into it by grace. And so how is your life bearing witness of that? How is Jesus using you to bring that transformative power into the lives of those around you, your circles of influence, the places where you live and where places where you work and the places where you play, those, those places you're around and where you're at all the time? How is God using your life to influence their lives? This morning, if you have not come into relationship with Jesus, here's the response for you. I hope that you understand that that ground is level, that you can and are accepted in Jesus Christ. That you don't have to earn your way. You can't earn your way into that. There ain't enough older ladies you can help across the road. There's not enough money you can put it on offering plate. There's nothing you could do to have your good outweigh your bad. In fact, the Bible tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's like blood-soaking saints, blood-stained rags that you were just you would do nothing but barely pick up to throw away. You would never take it and say, look at what I brought to you. No, it's refuse. Jesus won't accept it, but he'll accept the sacrifice he's made on your behalf, which is what you have to accept. So this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, what would keep you from that even today? Let's respond. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this object lesson. As Lord Jesus descended from the mountain with the twelve and came to that level place and began to minister and to teach the people, both those who were followers and those who were seekers, what a picture that is of everyone being accepted, everyone being embraced, that there's no hierarchy, there's no jockeying for position. It's all level before the Lord. This morning, that is, as we acknowledge, how we came into relationship with Jesus. Many of us in this room, those who were baptized, we confess this morning that Jesus is the Lord of our life. That our sins are forgiven, not because of our righteousness, but because of His righteousness. The fact that His sacrifice was acceptable because He is righteous. So that ground is level. And we praise you for it. And we thank you for how we've been brought in, accepted into the body of Christ. Now, Lord, I pray you'd help us to think about and be intentional of how we live, how we talk, how we share the gospel with others. Lord, leveraging our relationships, leveraging our opportunities, our positions for the sake of introducing people to Jesus. What, a, what if we live like the demoniac? 
who after coming to know Jesus went back and told everybody. Father, I pray for those in this room or watching this even who have never said yes to Jesus. Father, this morning their life may be really easy right now, may be really good and I just pray that even in the ease of life right now, that they would understand their brokenness, their fallenness, their helplessness, and be drawn to Jesus. But many times it has to come through hardship. Lord Mary Beth and her testimony is in a period of, of hardship and difficulty, she was brought to faith in Jesus. And I pray that you'd use that in the lives of people who need Jesus this morning. But Father, help us to respond. Respond in faith. Respond in repentance as we turn to the Lord. Open our hearts, our ears. Give us eyes that see the great needs in our life. And then turn to you. We pray in Jesus' name.